It is the Knickknack Podcast, Season 8, Episode 6, and I'm calling this one 30 Days of Learning, because I have spent actually probably more than 30 days since I've last talked to you, uh, as well as my 30th birthday, learning quite a number of things, and I want to share what I've learned and bring it up for discussion essentially, because that's kind of the point of this podcast, in my mind anyway. Uh, We'll be returning to some old ideas, to uh, kind of the root of where I was going with my thinking and my thoughts when I originally started this podcast, ironically enough. And we'll see if I can continue and move forward uh, with that, rather than stagnate, as I feel like I've done, uh, kind of, over the last couple years. Maybe towards the end of season seven I got out of it, but I feel like in looking back, uh, I haven't listened back, but in looking back in my memory of these some of these podcasts, I, I feel like I've kind of stagnated for a long time. So hopefully I have some refreshed ideas that I can bring to the table and uh, make for a more palatable listening experience. So sit back, relax, Grab your favorite beverage and get ready to uh, rock and roll here because this could be a long journey. Be back in a moment. All right, let's get into it here. Uh, The first thing I should cover, probably should be the actual events of my 30th birthday as uh, the build-up to that was, in my mind anyway, and maybe not evidenced in the audio, though I suspect it was, um, that was kind of a big event hanging over the uh, whole thing. And uh, I'll start this out by saying, when I was in the latter half of high school, say, uh, 17, 18, a couple years beyond that, uh, before I turned 20, certainly, I used to say, well, I'm going to die at the age of 30. And that's that was kind of my thinking. You know, my thinking was, okay, you know, I'm going to somehow get through this college thing. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to be making $50,000 a year. I'm going to be living in a city like Seattle or San Francisco and uh, you know I'm going to I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to get past my challenges, my unique challenges that I've faced in my life and I'm going to do the grown-up real-world adult thing. And that's what I'm going to do and I'm going to find success at that, but I'm not going to live past 30. Uh which was it's just kind of my thought and feeling at the time because I can re- clearly remember clearly, clearly remember how exhausted and burnt out I was by the time I finished high school. Um, I was glad that I managed to get over that obstacle, but God, was I tired. Um, And of course, getting through my struggle through college and making that work, uh, you know, I only became more exhausted. And lately, you know, kind of bridging the eight-year seven, eight-year gap uh, between the end of college and turning 30, 
uh, it's only gotten more fatiguing. And the main reason it's gotten fatiguing is I'm stuck in a loop, or I have been stuck in a loop. And the loop goes something like this. I have an external locus of control, which I will explain in more detail in a moment. Basically, it means that I, my self-esteem is dependent upon what others think of me. That's part of the uh, part of the catch of being a uh, broadcaster or entertainer or storyteller in any way, shape, or form. You judge your success based on how other people react to it, because there's no other way of judging it. You no way of other way of determining if you've created a good story or if you shared something of value. The only way you know that, or the only way you can can see, feel like you know that, is by getting, uh, you know, how many downloads does it get? How many donations did you get? Uh, how many people heard it? How many people responded to it? How many people interacted with it in some way? Uh, that's you know, the only real measure that I can think of uh, to measure how effective my work in new media has been. And, you know, again, that's an external locus of control. That's uh, thinking and feeling that other people and other forces external to yourself, be it God, the universe, um, society in general, whatever, that that is feeling that the people around you have hold your self-esteem in their hands. And loneliness, by definition, is uh, when, when you have that external locus of control, when you depend on others to uh, give you your, the reflection of yourself and give you your image and estimation of self-worth, then when nobody interacts with you, or with pe or when people get frustrated with you, or when you get rejected, as I typically do within my loop, uh, because phase one of my loop is looking for work, and when you get a bunch of rejections, uh, the self-esteem goes, well, shit. I'm not good enough to get a job. There must be something wrong with me. You know, that's logically where the mind goes. And there could be some truth to that, but you end up be I end up beating myself up over the fact that I can't find work. I'm, you know, I apply myself to jobs. I try and do well in the interview and, you know, I I get a lot of feedback that sounds similar to well, you've been working in internet radio and broadcasting for eight years. However, you don't actually have any call letters behind your name. Therefore, you don't have any experience that we can consider in traditional broadcasting. And therefore, we can't hire you as a traditional broadcaster. And I, I mean, part of it is also that I need to work on my presentation style as a broadcaster. However, the 
more intense feeling. The the part of it that hurt my self-esteem and my ego, um, it being defined by how other people view me at the time, was that they felt I wasn't good enough for terrestrial radio. I wasn't good enough or experienced enough for their station. I wasn't clean enough. I wasn't professionally sound, professional sounding enough. I wasn't the right voice for this, for their station. Um, and that's what hurts because I feel like this right here is my best skill, my primary skill, one, possibly my only skill. And if you put as much um, emphasis on whether on what other people think of you as I do, it's devastating when you have a reaction like that. You know, when people don't like what, what you've done, um, and that that extends obviously to the singing as well. Um, you know, I have. I have ears, you know, I have whatever uh, opinion of it in my mind that I have, um, and I don't, you know, I, everything that I do, new media-wise, podcasting, storytelling, writing, whatever it is, everything I do, I do in the hopes that somebody will financially compensate me for my efforts. But I know that this is the 21st century. And people won't pay for things that, you know, people won't pay for entertainment, that is, games, movies, TV shows, radio shows, podcasts, music people won't pay for that unless they really feel obligated to. They feel like they have to. They feel like it's a big thing. And this is just the shift. This is just the way things are going in the 21st century. Um, started with Kazaa and oh gosh Napster. Started with Napster then boiled down to Kazaa and LimeWire and Morpheus and then uh, started to shift over to BitTorrent at a certain point, and now, as much as they try to shut down Pirate Bay, and as much as uh, the powers that be, the corporate powers that be, try and shut down internet, uh, shut down the a free distribution of copyrighted content over the internet, and in the process, uh, manage to stagnate people like me that are releasing their work under a Creative Commons license, um, or not, ex- you know, not expecting that people are going to automatically pay for it. You know, I, I obviously I'm approaching things very differently. I'm being a part of this generation that doesn't necessarily, you know, buy music, uh, unless they really feel like, um, it's something that needs to be done. It's, in fact, better, and I would advise all musicians of this, even if they have some big studio contract, 
it's actually better if you have a PayPal donate button and you kinda say okay you're gonna steal the stuff I know that that's part of the the way things work now but give me money if you feel it's really worth it you know and it doesn't really matter what amount of money you give you know I suppose a new CD would be worth ten to twelve dollars if you're if you're getting the entire CD and that's you know that's what uh, Amazon or CD Baby or uh, iTunes, you know, that's what the price might be for an entire CD, let's say. But, or an entire album, because who buys CDs anymore? But, you know, that's not necessarily what people actually value it at. You know, if you have, you know, an album of my stuff, you know, given that it's a cappella or has a very basic uh, musical instrumental track behind my voice, you know, that, that has a different tonal texture to it. You know, it's not, it doesn't um, go with popular music. It's a little bit of a it's a little bit out there. It's a little bit not mainstream. It's a little bit... It, I, I'd hate to compare myself to Bob Dylan, but that's the only comparison I can think of. Be, because when you listen to Bob Dylan, to me anyway, it's not about him being on key and having a complicated, you know, guitar solo in the middle of the song you know it's not like listening to Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or anything like that it's a different listening experience it's very basic it's the sound of his guitar which is not heavily emphasized it's just a basic backing track to the vocal the vocal is the center of everything and Bob Dylan is not a strong singer and nor am I and I say this even before I've been criticized for not being a strong singer. But that's not the point. The point of listening to Bob Dylan, or myself, is the lyrics. Is the emotional intent and the emotional feeling that is hopefully expressed through the chanting of the words through the delivery of those lyrics it's it's about delivering lyrics and you know it's not powerful enough uh, to me or Dylan I, I don't think if you asked him I don't know uh, but, but it se doesn't seem powerful enough to just come up with words write them down on a page and collect all those words and publish it into the book. That doesn't seem very powerful to me. And so, I have always listened to music. I've always listened to James Taylor, Carly Simon, uh, Carol King, uh, Bob Dylan, The Beatles later on in life. And through that, I taught myself how to write lyrics. And that's always, you know, I better at writing lyrics 
than anything else. I'm not a good singer. I'm not, I can't really play the piano. I can't really play the guitar. But god damn it, I can write lyrics. And I can do my best to find a way to express those lyrics and deliver those lyrics to the listener in a way that conveys my emotion. In a way that you know, no other person that's covering the words of lyrics, no other person but me knows and truly understands the feeling and intent behind those lyrics that I derived. And I think you could certainly say the same, same thing about Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan writes wonderful songs, and there certainly have, have been many covers, many very popular covers of Bob Dylan songs that have had much more commercial success and are much more melodic and traditionally more enjoyable to listen to. However, there is something about hearing Bob Dylan's take, Bob Dylan being the original writer of the song, Hearing there's something about hearing Bob Dylan sing Blowing in the Wind versus the person who made the song famous. I can't remember who it is off the top of my head. But there's something about hearing his version of that. His he's the original writer of the song. He's the one that knew he's the one that knows the song. He made the goddamn song. So however he chooses to perform that song is the right way, is the only true way. Same goes for Carol King. She writes her songs she, you know, not the strongest singer in the world, but that's okay, because here she is, she's creating these songs. You know, she wrote, You've Got a Friend, and she wrote that song, she knows the original meaning behind that song, she has everything in that song. Now, James Taylor later came along and covered that, and had a decent amount of uh, commercial success with it, but Carol King wrote the song, and Carol King originally performed the song. And um, another example I can think of is Come and Get It, as performed by Badfinger, originally written by Paul McCartney, and written, I might add, in a style that's very um, compatible with Beatles, with Beatles era. Uh, late Beatles era, but still. Uh, that was kind of the, the way the song went. And you know, it wasn't until uh, the Beatles Anthology 3 came along, and you could hear the Beatles' take on it, that you realized, or that you can't, could realize, that that was roughly the performance of the song that Paul McCartney was looking for, and that Paul McCartney, as the writer of that song, intended. Now, Badfinger did a really good job, they sound very Beatles-like uh, on that recording. And it's a Beatles song. But they aren't the Beatles. They aren't going to perform it the same way that uh, the Beatles would typically perform it. The, they wouldn't give it the same sound and texture as Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr would. It's, they just... They can't, because they're not... They're not them, you know? And... Anyway. 
that's kind of the way I feel very strong and very passionate about my singing. And I va- I value it. I think it has value. I value these podcasts. I think it ha- they have value. I broadcast. I value my radio shows. I think they have tremendous value. And I'm working very hard on trying to separate what others think of the of the work that I do versus what I think about the work that I do because I've gotten a little bit lazy uh, in the past eight years of podcasting. I've gone from editing the hell out of the thing for two hours to, eh, that sounds good enough. I'll put it on the internet. There's, you know, there's issues in either side of the coin. However, I feel like the podcast that I produce today is the most truthful and honest product that I can come up with. It's the most truthful and honest product that I have. And I feel like this is my ultimate product of value. And this is my um, first best destiny. Uh, no other way I can think of to say it as a podcaster. This is what I do. This was what I was put on earth to do. I firmly believe. And my intent behind it is to expose ideas uh, to people that generally in their in the course of their day-to-day lives are too busy to think of, are too busy to contemplate. And hopefully get them to think about these things and hopefully get them to in, interpret some value from these things that I do and somehow apply it to the world in a meaningful way, whether it be pass on the message or whether it be just taking a different approach to the day than you might otherwise have done. You know, it could be something as simple as, well, this guy I heard podcasting talked a little bit about the point in life where he had been homeless a couple times. And, you know, he admitted that sometimes he spent the money people gave him on cigarettes. And sometimes he spent the money people gave him on soda because he's addicted to cigarettes and soda. But he was also this person that was struggling in a real human way. And he, he was doing the best that he could. And, you know, through that empathy, through through my ability to convey what it was like to be homeless or what it was like to be stranded, really, more than homeless, um, and struggling to try and get back home and struggling to survive and needing to rely on others to do that. Um, I would hope that by sharing just a little bit that I just did, that there might be some greater sense of understanding that you, the listener, can now impart from my words. And maybe the next time you pass um, somebody that's homeless on the street, you know, you may not give them money. You may not give them food. You may not do much more than what I do, which is kind of acknowledge that they're looking for something, 
cast your eyes down and say something like, sorry, I can't help you. That may be what you do. But if you change the way you think about them, if you can empathize with, with them just a little bit, in part as as the result of what I just said, well then, that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. I hope that's what happens. As a res- I hope that people are positively impacted as a result of listening to me yammer on. And that's the way I value it. That's the, I think, I feel convinced that me doing this podcast can bring out new ideas to people. And that by listening to these ideas, people can approach the world in a better way. Approach the world in ways that they might not have otherwise. And that's my firm belief. And that's why I keep doing this. But, you know, I get a lot of criticism. A lot of criticism from people. Uh, Mainly my wannabe stepmother. Who said something like, you can't sing, you're never going to make any money trying to sing, you need to go out and find a real job. And fuck you, bitch. Because the point of it is not to make money. That would be nice, you know, I I always pass the hat after any performance I do, as, you know, any carny would do. But I don't pass the hat expecting people to toss money in there. I hope people will toss money in there. I hope people will give me a tangible form of expression that says they value what I do. They value my experience and expertise and my work. But I don't expect it. And that's not compatible with the traditional dogma of thinking, I suppose. And that's probably why this person in particular, the evil wannabe stepmother, feels so threatened by me. Is because I don't embrace the idea of go to work for 40 years, slaving away, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, you know, almost no vacation time in the year, and then, you know, retire for seven or eight years, and then keel over and die, and just really try and enjoy the hell out of those, you know, five, six years that towards the end of your life that you're healthy. I don't subscribe to that. And there's a reason I don't subscribe to that. And the reason is my being sick as a kid has taught me that the world is not trustworthy. That the world will screw you over every chance it gets. That me giving up my self, putting myself 
on a lower scale than some other greater power, be it the government, be it the universe, be it whatever. Me that that when I if I acknowledge that I'm not the most powerful for force in the universe, in my universe, I should say. If I trust in the world around me to support me and have an external locus of control, then I'm going to get fucked. And I'm going to get fucked hard for as long as I live. And I'm not going to want to live very long because I'm going to get fucked consistently. And part of turning 30 has been realizing how fatiguing getting fucked by the rest of the world consistently has been over the last 30 years. Uh, actually, it's more like 26 years, 27 years of, of being aware of it, of being conscious of it. And it's it's been hugely fatiguing. I'm, I, I, you know, I felt betrayed by Lena uh, after the trip. And who's to say I'm wrong, you know? There's probably a little bit of truth in that, that I was betrayed, that my trust and my friendship and my hope and the amount of positive energy I tried to invest into that relationship was betrayed. And coming off of that, you know, I tried to fill the void. I tried to, you know, fill that feeling of of loneliness, fill that empty cavern in my heart with somebody else's, you know, by, by finding somebody else that I could invest in, somebody else that I could give love in the hope that they would give me love. And I've had it fail, let's say, with uh, Sarah over the past couple weeks. Um, and originally I met Sarah at a group and found her to be incredibly attractive, incredibly smart, incredibly um, pained, but empathetic, and understanding of my pain, and understanding of my burden, and we kind of shared a similar burden. You know, and we enjoyed an outing together. I wouldn't call it a date, but we enjoyed an outing together. We talked, and things were great. And then uh, the next day, uh, Lena set something off, just, I don't know, talking about getting together with an ex-boyfriend or something like that with some sort of stupidness. And I was frustrated by the fact that here I am, sitting here with all my love, all my empathy, all my desire to make myself available to Lena in a way that no one else in her life seems to, in a way that no one else, I want to acknowledge her in a way that nobody else seems to. But she doesn't want that acknowledgement. She doesn't want that. She wants, you know, whatever superficial, or to me, what, what, to me what seems 
super superficial interaction that you can get from, you know, a rich Indian guy in Silicon Valley. Um, you know. But anyway, I was trying to fill that void. I was trying to compensate for that fact. And, and I woke up and I felt so strained um, by what she was telling me and so hurt again, so betrayed again, that I, you know, turned to this new friend, let's call her Sarah, for help and you know, I think I think I tried to be fairly sensitive with it. I said something like, you know, I, are you open to talking to someone today? Are you able to to listen and give me feedback? And she basically said, well, you know, I can listen for a little bit, but I'm, no, I'm not really in that sort of place. So I gave maybe a 15, 20 second bit. Uh, she said something help helpful. We talked for about a minute and a half. And I said something like, well, if you feel up to doing something later today, let me know. And thank you. And hung up the phone. And, you know, proceeded to go about my day and trying to find, try to find somebody other than my family that I could uh, talk to. And get feedback about what was going on in my mind. Obviously, I couldn't talk to Lena about it because... That was the source of my trouble. And I think I kind of processed and got through that weekend. But when I went to the group meeting and saw Sarah again, I expressed openly in the group my frustration with the fact that nobody was available to hug me and help me in my time of need. When I when I felt so betrayed by Lena, I didn't have anyone I could hug, essentially, was the feeling. And I suspect that that is what triggered Sarah. And after the meeting, Sarah said, I don't want to see you outside a group. I think she said it in a nicer way than that. Um, she related it to how she feels, the place that she was in at the moment. Um, you know, and I'm not going to... I don't judge her for that. I don't think less of her for that. I'm... I find myself frustrating, frustrated, and I find myself having a hard time letting this go because I feel like there was a great potential there. I feel like here was a person that I could have gotten along with very well. And my intense need, my intense desperation, my intense loneliness destroyed that relationship and per thus prevented me from having somebody to hug had I not you know been so desperate had I not so thought so little of myself that I needed needed to be hugged then maybe I could have had a good relationship here and that's kind of 
a, ba- a demon that I've been battling over the last couple weeks. Um, but I've also tr- been trying to, you know, talk to somebody else. Um, even before my birthday, a couple weeks before my birthday on OKCupid. Okay, uh, let's call her Helen. And I was real forward with Helen. I told her pretty much everything. And Helen wasn't resistant to how much I told her. Uh, She certainly expressed a want and a desire to be a friend. And I very much appreciate that, Helen, if you happen to be listening. But, again, I think my intense need, my intense desperation, my intense desire to have Helen be someone that I could hug or kiss um, made it such that I put too much emphasis on my potential relationship with Helen and now I'm kind of in no man's land with this relationship because I I value who Helen is she has a very strong very admirable personality and soul and you know, I feel like I can measure that more readily through electronic communication than in face-to-face communication. Uh, just because I do. Uh, but, you know, I feel like she's a very strong person. She's a very beautiful person. She's a very resilient person. And she deserves someone that sees that. She deserves someone that respects that. And I very much feel the same way about Lena. I'm frustrated as all hell by her levels of shallowness, and maybe she'll grow out of that, maybe she won't. Um, Keeping in mind that she's 24 going on 25, and the brain hasn't necessarily fully fully developed by that age. Um, But Helen is in her mid-30s. Sarah is in her late-30s. I am now 30, which is weird, Um, and I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to go to a different level of relationships and intellectualisms, and I'm I, I intend to do it by valuing myself, by having an internal locus of control uh, by saying to myself my work is valuable because I feel my work is valuable I don't care what my evil wannabe stepmother says I don't care if I never make a goddamn dime doing what I do I do what I do because I feel it has value and even though society isn't necessarily willing to contribute or isn't necessarily ready to reward me or or express how much they value my work directly. There are social systems in place to which will allow me to survive legitimately this way. 
because I legitimately can't survive any other way. I can't... I can't have the... I, I, I can't do retail without having a breakdown. I absolutely cannot. I can't do tech, tech support where I am forced by company policies to lie to the customer consistently over and over again and get yelled at by the and attacked by the customer consistently over and over again without having a breakdown. The, what, what I can do is I can find a venue or create a venue where I can express myself through storytelling or for th through radio production whether it be a talk show or a music show or a little bit of both that is what I can do and I accept that I accept that that is my skill range that that is who I am and as I go from my 20s into my 30s I am determined to focus on what I think my strengths are versus what other think others think of me because I don't I, I mean I desire love and respect I want to be valued but I think that's that needs to be secondary that needs to be secondary to me valuing myself and having an external lo or excuse me and having an internal locus of control versus an external one which is really hard to do when you're in a public medium like this when again you it's hard you know it's hard to analyze and put value on your work that you've just developed internally like you know if I just hit record and hit stop and only listen to this myself and never shared it with anybody else ever uh, you know I'm gonna have whatever opinion I might have but unless I release it you know I, I can't you know I have to release it in order for me to have completed my work and part of releasing stuff to the public means that other people are going to judge it and criticize it and as this is a place I've been before uh, there's there's this thin line between being considered insane and being considered a creative genius and this unfortunately is all external to you you know I can't control whether people think I'm insane or a genius I have no control over that. Uh, you know, I can I can try and use operant conditioning and a number of other techniques to hopefully influence them towards the creative genius side rather than the insane side or the insane side rather than the creative genius side depending on what my intent is because sometimes it serves my purposes to go one way more than the other. But I think internally I am I'm insane and I'm a creative genius or I'm a creative genius that just happens to be insane but I think the two things are the same
I think it's one thing. It's, you know, to have a divergent way of thinking, to have a divergent personality, to have a personality and personal structure that isn't consistent with the traditional with the traditional cultural memes. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not consistent with the tra traditional cultural memes, as has been di dictated by my life experience thus far. You know, I can't survive in a world where I'm expected to wear a tie and be nice to people all day, because that's that's not who I am. That's not... I can't. Um... Are there times that I wish that I could because it would make life easier? Hell yeah. But that doesn't mean I can do it. And I'm okay with that. It's frustrating, but I think that there is more value in what I do than what a you know, some what somebody that is what somebody who is still scanning groceries and ringing customers up at Walmart does. Because what value does that have, ultimately? All that does is give the company money. It gives you a little bit of money, but, you know, ultimately what you're doing is you're just collecting cash for the company. And, you know, bagging things. And, you know, it's just like, well, how rewarding is that? That's superficial and dumb and I you know there's some people that get a high out of it that there's some people that enjoy doing that you know having the three second conversation with customers or whatever it is and good for them because while that may be may not be something that I value or have much value in I, I do you know I like it when I don't have to bag my own groceries you know, I put value in that, you know, and, you know, if, if, if other people are happy with what they're doing, great, you know, but it's not for me, it's not something that I have the capacity to do, and I think it's belittling and frustrating when society says something like, Okay, you can't tr exist in a traditional 9-to-5 world. Okay, you're broken and disabled. And there is some truth to that. In, in the traditional sense, I am broken and disabled. And, you know, I have psychological tests and doctors that will, be, that will happily back me up on that one. But, you can also, rather than looking at yourself or looking at someone that is in my situation as broken, disabled, and useless, a useless parasite on society, as some conservatives might put it, you could also say, well, here's someone that needs a different opportunity that needs a different way of approaching life, a different opportunity, different way to succeed. And I think that that unique need 
shouldn't be shamed. Because I don't, I don't have any shame on it. You know, I actually have a little bit of pride on it. You know? I did not bend to the corporate machine that is Walmart. I put up with it for a little while, but ultimately I said, meh, fuck this. I'm not going to do this, even if it means starving. Fuck off. And I did the same thing with Comcast. I was just like, you know, I'm not going to lie for you. I'm not going to be part of your um, lying, cheating, close the internet off, and deceive people from what's really long, wrong with their technical setup. I'm not going to do that. I have more... Um, I'm better than that. I have more... Um, let's see, honesty, but integrity. There's the word that I'm looking for. I have more integrity than that. I'm not going to sell out, even if it means starving. I don't... I'm not going to do it. And that's the choice, you know? And if I'm in a situation where... Well, actually, here, I have a perfect example here. I don't have a car by choice. There are times when I wish I had made a different choice. Many times, actually. Um, and I would like the opportunity to get a vehicle at some point again in the future. However, for the moment... I can't afford it. It's not practical. And as frustrating as it is to not have independent transportation, ultimately, I can survive without it. And I could say the same thing about being homeless. As frustrating as it would be to be on the streets again, to be completely dependent on eating scraps of food out of a dumpster or begging for food or begging for cigarettes or begging for soda or begging for whatever it is it might be that you need that has more integrity to it than working at Walmart or working at Comcast to me everybody everything's relative you know my, what works for me doesn't isn't going to necessarily work for somebody else but i am in the process of being okay with the decisions I made, of not regretting my decisions. I've consistently made the best decisions that I that I know how to make at the time that I make them. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You can always say, "Well, I should have made a different decision," but you can't go back in time. And sometimes, as I'm sitting here being all contemplative and whatever. I realized that even if I could go back in time, I wouldn't change anything. Because A led to B, and B led to C, and C led to D. And, you know, going from A to D is a tough, tiring journey. But, you know, D is a worthwhile place to be. And, you know, it takes a lot to say, to have that amount of confidence in yourself to say I'm okay with who I am I'm okay with the decisions I've made I'm okay with what I have even if other people judge me harshly and that is you know that is having an internal locus con of control as opposed to an external locus of control 
And as far as what I did for my actual 30th birthday, realizing that this episode's getting a little long in the tooth, I went to San Francisco. I originally intended on um, going to with to the vicinity of Chrissy Field and just kind of sitting there and trying to get my spirit back. That was my intent because I felt that broken. I felt like that was the only thing I could do at the time, um, and I was not comfortable with turning thirty. What ended up happening was I found my spot. I sat there for all of, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And then, um, you know, Lena and I had been talking about getting together, and I wasn't fully, you know, liking the idea, but I was like, you know, okay. Um, so we met uh, near the Powell BART station on Market, and we had some Slurpees. She bought me two packs of cigarettes, which I was infinitely grateful for because I was out of money by that time and uh, she lent me the key deposit for the hostel which I wasn't expecting to have to pay Um, and we had dinner and we talked a little bit and you know it was getting a chance to hug and say goodbye properly uh, was a tremendous help over the last time we met and having you know, having having it be in a situation where we couldn't properly say goodbye. Um, so that was a significant improvement. And being able to talk face to face that was that's always a good thing. You know, it's it's nerve wracking to talk to somebody face to face, especially when it feels like they keep hurting you. However, that's the best way to communicate with somebody, um, despite my nervousness <laughs> and social anxiety. But you know, that's the best way to talk to somebody. And it was a good birthday, uh, all in all. I I wouldn't, looking back on it, you know, I, in the situation I was in with what I had at the time, I couldn't have asked for much more than that. I was very grateful for what I had. And I was very grateful for having that day. Um... You know, and I'm not going to say I thank the Lord for that or anything crappy or s- silly sounding like that. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't my dream 30th birthday. And I can't even tell you what my dream 30th birthday would have would have been. But as I look back on it now, I'm okay with what it was. And the next day, I got up. I... Um, I I wrote Lena a check to pay her back for the train ticket and for the key deposit. Um, had to harass her a little bit to get her to deposit it, but she did. And the next day, I found a coffee shop cafe on Geary, and I had two smoothies, uh, which I spent a lot of money on, but they were damn good smoothies. And I took advantage of the Wi-Fi and, uh, you know, uh, conversed with Helen a little bit. And that kind of distracted me from, uh, you know, the way I was feeling about Lena at the time and the way I still feel in a lot of ways. But I'm, you know, processing that and getting somewhere with that, I hope. 
and um, you know I was able to just walk walk through the city. I walked by Japantown. I walked uh, through Alamo Square. Took some pictures. Um, they didn't come out very well, but I did take pictures. And then I walked up uh, by Masonic and the USF campus, um, where a friend of mine went to school. And I visited that friend a number of times, Kate, um, when she was going to school. And so I walked down Masonic and uh, stopped at my favorite Mexican restaurant, Poncho's, which is also on Geary, and really enjoyed that good lunch. Uh, took some pictures again, and then uh, made my way down to my spot by Chrissy Field, and just kind of sat there and listened to the sound of the water, and, you know, had a few cigarettes, and changed my view a number of times, and took pictures, and tried to just, you know, be in the moment, be in wise mind. Um, you know, just be there, be in the moment, and appreciate what it was. And it was good. And uh, then later, uh, when it came time to get the bus, or get the bus to the train to head back home, I uh, you know, started walking towards Pier 39. I walked through Fisherman's Wharf. I stopped at Girly Deli Square. Had a really expensive single scoop of strawberry ice cream. And, uh, unfortunately, well, okay, no judgment. I decided to get McDonald's as I was walking through Fisherman's Wharf. And, um, I walked all the way down to Pier 39 and waited for the bus. The surreal and strange feeling of it, though, was that San Francisco was more of a ghost city to me. It was more of a city of memories from various times in my life than it was an active place where I actually was. It felt very surreal that way. And there are times when I feel that way walking through Chico, but to this day, I feel like I grew up in San Francisco, not Chico. And I can't I can kind of explain that, uh, in that the times I was in San Francisco, I was usually with my Aunt Nancy, and there was usually some great lesson to be learned through whatever we invent adventure we decided to embark on, um, versus Chico, which, you know, I, I, I know I learned things here, I know I grew up here, physically, but I think I learned more uh, especially on my 30th birthday and around that time than I've there than I've ever learned here I don't feel like I've learned a lot while in Chico and I think that's part of the reason why I feel a great amount of anxiety relative to staying here for a while but I'm okay with it I've decided I'm not going to fight being here. I'm going to be here for as long as I feel I need to be here, and hopefully at some point, sooner rather than later, I'll be able to go back to Seattle and handle it, 
and thrive or go to San Francisco and be able to handle it and thrive. That's my hope. Um, but I'm not going to do that before I'm ready. Uh, I will do that, but not before I'm ready. And um, I took the train back from that trip and cute taxi driver that I worked with at one point um, was on the train and somebody else started hitting on her and that kind of ruined my lounge car night. But, you know, it was all wasn't lost. I took the train to San Francisco. I had a good couple days in San Francisco. You know, I learned a lot. I grew a little bit in that trip and I came back. And there were moments there when I was at my spot where I thought of just, you know, diving into the bay and letting myself drown. Or, um, you know, I was looking at the Golden Gate and wondering if there was actually a net there, you know. Um, still a lot of suicidal thoughts at that point. And I'm not going to lie to you, they're not, you know, they, they're always there on, at, they've always been there at some level. Um, and it's, you know, it takes a lot of work to try and get those to go to the back of the mind and not be actively invasive. Um, they're subconsciously invasive, of course, but, you know, I don't want them to be actively invasive because that's no good for me. Uh, but, you know, I came back from that trip and I uh, got off the train, rode my bike home in the dark with no bike light. Um, so that was kind of taking a risk, but I was just like, eh, you know, I'm just going to ride my bike home. Um, you know, came back, got a pack of cigarettes at Walgreens, I think, and came back home and, you know, was okay with it. Resumed going to my groups for the most part. Uh, subsequently met Sarah. And, uh, of course, subsequently Sarah informed me that she no longer wanted to meet with me outside a group. And I'm working on being okay with that. Uh, and recently, more recently, I've taken... Um, Ren's advice, uh, Ren being another person that I met through the groups, uh, to look up Louise Hay, and I've looked up Louise Hay, and uh, that's where a lot of, that's where part of the basis of what I'm talking about a lot in this episode is coming from, is having listened to Louise Hay. But I've also renewed my interest in Psychology and my reasons for being interested in psychology are—I have a couple different reasons for that. Uh, the primary one is, and this is kind of a the primary reason is I feel like I have a hard time relating to others, and I think that if I am able to find a clear set of rules that governs human behavior so that I can develop a better theory of mind, I will be better able to succeed in social situations. 
and that's what I hope to get from psych psychology on a lot of levels. But there's also this interest that I've had kind of at the back of my mind ever since I started seeing uh, Dr. Gansler, first psychologist I ever saw when I was four or five. Um, you know, there's there's something attractive in being the provider of psychotherapy or counseling however you want to look at it there's something attractive in that to me um, part of the attractiveness is you get embroiled in the world of somebody else's problems which are not your problems and the ability to escape into somebody else's problems is kind of freeing because you can look at it from a different perspective than you can look at, of course, your, from your own problems from. And you can more easily apply psychological theory and practice in your presentation to somebody else than you can to yourself. One of the challenges I keep running into whenever I consciously address psychology is that... I can understand these ideas and these concepts and I can say to myself, oh, you have an external locus of identity. That's your problem. That's a huge part of your problem. You should focus on developing an internal, internal locus of identity. That way, if people betray you or let you down, you still have the faith in yourself in enough love and compassion for yourself that you can get through and that way your self-identity isn't threatened by how others perceive you in theory um, you know I can say that to myself and I was just saying that to myself oh gosh probably uh, 24 hours ago I don't know uh, some amount of time ago, some recent amount of time ago. But, you know, it's it's difficult when you psychoanalyze yourself because you're internal to yourself. It's not like you're going in and listening to a patient say, well, um, I've had a series of people uh, that I've been interested in that haven't been interested in me uh, I haven't had much luck getting a job I haven't uh, been able to go to many social functions I don't have any friends you know somebody comes to you and says that as a psychologist um, or as a licensed marriage and family counselor or whatever whatever level of practitioner you happen to be you can say oh they have an external locus of control and they're putting they're investing their identity in the way others people the, the way others see them and I suppose at that point there's two approaches you can go on to investigate you know kind of take the Freudian approach as I understand it and try to get try to get in at what to 
the unconscious and try to figure out why this person made it, has made this choice. Um, for me, though, as an armchair psychologist, as an aspiring psychologist, um, the cause of the maladaptive behavior is not what interests me. I'm interested in identifying the maladaptive behavior in this example, external locus of control, and trying to find ways to um, replace that maladaptive behavior with an adaptive behavior or a better coping skill or a better, you know, improve, trying to improve and hopefully reverse, reverse that pattern of thought to make the person to try in hopes of making the person feel better or allowing the person to feel better that's better phraseology so my approach would wouldn't be okay why why do you feel like people have let you down and you know they come back with in this example because I'm psychoanalyzing myself which is a bad idea but they come back with oh well you know I was made fun of as a kid, uh, I was bad at sports, I uh, never wanted to do my homework, so my parents were always on my back and yelling at me, and I didn't have very many friends, and that scared my parents, so they were always on my back and yelling at me, you know, and you know, if, if I am sitting in the, in the therapist chair and listening to somebody say, say that, you know, it's going to become clear to me why, why they can't trust other people, why they feel so hurt, and why whatever uh, self-worth they had at one point, or may have had, or may have been able to develop in their lives, um, is not sufficient to sustain them at this point in their lives. I can, you know, you can, you can get to the why relatively easily but the why doesn't interest me the how interests me um, you know if I were a practicing psychologist which I'm not but I may be one day depending on what happens my interest would be what's the problem maybe a little bit of why is this a problem? How did this become a problem? But my focus would be on how do we fix this problem? How can we make this problem better? How can we make your life better? How can we make your existence more pleasant? Or in my own terms, how can we make life suck less? And that's where you know, the answers to that question are entirely subjective and individual. And the whole process of psychotherapy uh, is completely subjective when you're seeing a, a, a therapist um, or when you are the therapist and listening to a client because they're going to give you only a slice of their life. And they're only going to give you the slice of their life that they're comfortable with giving you. And that puts you as a therapist at a significant 
disadvantage. So in some ways it's easier to psychoanalyze yourself than it is to psychoanalyze others. Um, however, I feel that these are good skills and I feel that this is an interest and I feel that I could possibly um, make through make it through the educational and financial burdens to become uh, a therapist of some sort or a, I don't know psychologist um, in California a therapist can have a master's degree and be a marriage and family therapist MFT uh, with masters in psychology um, you can only be referred to as a psychologist in California if you have a PhD or PhyD in psychology which is obviously a much bigger step um, so I'm, I started kind of looking at this and in part of looking at this I got back in touch with Dr. Gansler which was a pleasure to do um, I want to do that more often because he's such a um, he was ah, he's a good person a very good person and I feel like I've learned a lot from him and the relationship that we have at this point um, he's been retired six years something like that um, is not consistent with what you might call the typical therapist client relationship but then again at this point he's not my therapist he's not my psychologist I'm not paying him uh, by the hour to psychoanalyze me and we're just you know we talk um, there's still more emphasis on getting my story um, from me than there is on getting on me getting his story from him but I'm you know working I'm working on that in all relationships rather than uh, me sharing my story all the time I want to hear hear and be able to listen to other people's stories because that's a an important skill to have as far as social interaction goes um, and B that's an important skill that's a vital skill to have if you're going to uh, go into therapy or being a therapist you have to be able to listen to others and not interrupt them and uh, that's always been a struggle of mine uh, and I endeavor to get better at that but yeah it was a great meeting I, I saw some of his work some of his art, it was beautiful photography, and, you know, we talked, we connected, I, you know, I asked him a couple questions about what his impressions, impression of me was at the time that he saw me as a therapist, um, and I got some insight into that, and this, this whole therapy thing, this whole uh, renewed interest in psychology stemmed not from uh, the treatment that I'm currently getting at be Behavioral Health, but rather from a book that I found on Audible called Conversations with Strangers, and it's by Phyllis Shaken. Shaken. Um, it's on Audible. Very easy to find. Just do a search for it. Uh, Conversation with Strangers. Definitely worth a listen. More than one listen, in fact. I listen to it several times over. Uh, I still haven't made it through the first pass, but it's it's really helpful. It's very insightful. Um, 
uh, Phyllis has a master's degree and is licensed in the state of Philadelphia or excuse me state of Pennsylvania oh dear she's licensed Phyllis is licensed in the state of Pennsylvania uh, rural Pennsylvania and uh, like I said has a master's and has a long time of experience of experience in providing folks with psychotherapy and her insights are invaluable and uh, very helpful and that's kind of what got me thinking about oh hmm psychology yes I like psychology talking to people and listening to people that's something that I enjoy um, observing other people's behavior that's something I enjoy I, a lot of my time is spent you know if I'm out kind of watching the people around me if I'm sitting in a coffee place I'll just watch the people around me um, I'm sure the NSA finds that very strange but uh, in any case that was where my renewed spark of interest in uh, psychology came from and I'm trying to again um, kind of embark upon two paths uh, simultaneously hoping that the paths will kind of meet in my brain uh, given that my brain is very empirical and likes science and data and experiments, um, I, I am trying to refresh, renew, and improve my knowledge of um, uh, theoretical psychology, the, the theory of psychology and psychoanalysis and all that good stuff. Freud, Maslow, um, B.F. Skinner, uh, Jung, uh, and other greats as well that are currently currently escaping my mind. Uh, John Locke, John Locke, he was initially important. Um, so these are kind of the the tradi more traditional sources of psychology that I'm looking at again and I took Psycho 101 in college and I took um, Psychology of Creativity in college and I think that's no I know that's where a lot of my initial things that I said on this podcast about memes and uh, creativity versus insanity that's where a lot of that came from uh, because I was studying that and I was very interested in that and I remain very interested in that. I think, uh, you know, trying to figure out the line and differentiate the line between insanity and creativity and how society as a whole, the social names of a society dictate that line. Uh, I think that would be a very ripe topic for a thesis or dis dissertation at some point uh, if I decide to pursue that. Uh, so that's kind of where my interests lie there. Um, but then also, of course, I want to study social psychology so I can um, hopefully use that as a way to uh, learn the social skills that I didn't necessarily pick up naturally. Um, I view psychology as just another another study of truth um, and hopefully in studying social psychology in particular 
um, I will be better equipped to function socially more in a way function socially in a way that is consistent with my desires and also of course um, the other trajectory that I'm following is uh, you know the Lewis Hay uh, trajectory and the presence of process which has been re recommended to me by a, a local therapist here external to be behavioral health um, I have yet to acquire it but I will at some point next month, I'm sure. But uh, again, I'm trying to focus on self-affirmation uh, and and you know, enforcing the theoretical knowledge that I can have an internal um, locus of control. That I can, even though I'm in a field of work that is very much dependent on the thoughts of others I can function in my field of work I can function as a human I can continue to survive by healthily with an internal locus of control that's kind of where I'm trying to go at this point in my life um, I'm all I also started working on a memoir after seeing Dr. Gansler and you know whether I finished that or not remains to be seen but I'm working on it um, and I'm also working on a new novel concept um, and this is based on basically on my interest in detectives and um, airplanes and aviation and aircraft investigation um, and also partially from half reading whatever portion of, of it that I've read uh, Flight for Control uh, which is by uh, Petit Catherine Petit no it's not Catherine uh, I think it's Caroline Petit maybe but she uh, she lives in Seattle and she works for uh, a major US carrier flying Airbus A330s internationally and uh, she wrote this book called Flight for Control and then subsequently Flight for Safety uh, which is basically about uh, a former NTSB in investigator that has um, uh, left her job to raise her kids and now feels that her kids are old enough to where she can return to work and uh, there's a little bit of friction there between herself and her husband and her family in her returning to work um, and there's a tremendous story to be told there not just in terms of uh, there's been a series of big airplane crashes but also in terms of uh, that consistent battle um, that I think any parent faces mother maybe more so than a father hard to tell um, of when is it okay to go back to work what is the proper balance between family and work life and uh, that's another interesting question that uh, I'm working on investigating through uh, my series Space Pioneers which hopefully I'll uh, get to working on again here soon um, God's Bob Newman is dead not dead 
Wow, Freudian slip. Uh, done. Um, but I suppose also dead in that I'm not going to... I don't plan to, I don't feel like I need to revisit that project. Um, it's been released, you can listen to it on uh, my Bandcamp, Bandcamp page. Uh, you can find that off of knickknackjack.lipson.com. That's November Indio Charlie, November Alpha Charlie, Juliet Alpha Kilo, dot Lima Indio Bravo, Sierra Yankee November.com, and uh, Audio for Sale. Click on Audio for Sale and you'll find that. Uh, you may have to search through it a little bit, but you'll you'll see all my songs there and you can kind of browse the store. And uh, God's Bob Newman will be one of the things that is available there. Um, and you can listen to it online for free, or you can um, uh, buy it. Um, I don't expect you to buy it, as with the songs, you know, listen all you want. I'm not, I'm not going to worry about that. Um, if you want to pirate it, I'm sure there's a way to pirate off of Bandcamp's website. Uh, I'm not going to sue you for it. Uh, I'm not going to discourage it. What I will do, though, is actively encourage you to donate if you feel it's appropriate. Um, and you can do that on my website, nicknockjack.lipson.com. There's a little PayPal button there. Uh, that's November Indio Charlie, November Alpha Charlie, Juliet Alpha Kilo, dot Lima Indio Bravo, Sierra Yankee November dot com, N I C N A C J A K dot Lipson dot com, L I B S Y N dot com, and that's where you'll find that. And um, as I mentioned today, uh, Phyllis Schenken, uh, conversations with strangers very good book to get um audio edition found it audible um book edition found it any uh, reputable reputable bookstore i would imagine amazon certainly and oh, let's see what else um flight for control uh just google flight for control or flight for safety and uh it's by Miss P- Mrs. Petit, and uh, it's a good read. I haven't read all the way through it um, yet, any of those books that I mentioned, but I'm working on it. I'm look- listening to a od- lot of audiobooks at the moment. That's part of the way- one of the ways that I'm keeping my brain actively engaged, because I don't want my brain deteriorating, uh, especially um, looking at both m- my grandmother on my dad's side and my grandfather on my mom's side. Um, they both have, um, uh, let's see, my grandmother on my dad's side has dementia, and my grandfather on my mom's side has, um, oh gosh, it's, um, something, something syndrome. Uh, it's just like the breakdown of the brain. Um, I, I wish I had the proper term for it, but um, the point for me is I'm getting older. I'm getting on in life. But I don't want to give up on my brain. I don't want to uh, give in to an external locus of control. I can still do something with my life. 
Uh, it may only go on for another 43 years or so. I may be 40% done with it or so. But I'm not done with it yet. And so long as I'm not done with it, it's worthwhile to podcast, to do what I love, and to not give a fuck about what other, other people think of me. If you want to give feedback, you can. I can't promise that I'm really going to give it patootie, but uh, I do like to hear feedback. Um, you can do so by email, N-I-C-N-A-C-J-A-K at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash N-I-C-N-A-C-J-A-K. Uh, Facebook.com slash November Indio Charlie, November Alpha Charlie, Juliet Alpha Kilo. And on Twitter, just do a search for Nicknack Jack, N I C N A C J A K. Uh, November Indio Charlie, November Alpha Charlie, Juliet Alpha Kilo. And don't forget, uh, you have the Lipson webpage as well. That's N I C N A C J A K dot Lipson dot com. And uh, you can find my audio for sale there you can donate and uh, you can even leave a voice message if you so desire and I'll play it on the next podcast um again that's November Indio Charlie November Alpha Charlie Juliet Alpha Kilo dot Lima Indio Bravo Sierra Yankee November dot com and thank you guys so much for listening I think I do I'm very good at podcasting And I hope you've enjoyed it. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, happy road running, happy landing. Bye.